everyone and welcome back to the Glam Observer podcast. I'm Jada, founder and CEO of the first fashion career advice platform Glam Observer, a fashion career coach, best-selling author, Forbes under 30, and in this podcast I will share actionable tips, tricks and behind-the-scenes secrets of the fashion industry. If you're an ambitious fashion enthusiast looking to start a career in this industry, you are in the right place. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Glam Observer podcast. In this episode, we will chat about Hannah Winter. We all know Hannah Winter as the iconic editor-in-chief of Vogue. You might recognize her for a book cut, her black glasses and her floral dresses. But she's not only a strong leader with an extraordinary work ethic, and she's neither so cold in reality. I've been fascinated by Hannah Winter for a long time, and I can probably say that maybe she's the person in fashion that I admire the most. If you read my book, Your Fashion Dream Plan, you know that there is an illustration as well as a chapter with her name. So I was very excited to sit down with Amy Odell, who has just published her book, Hannah, the Biography, which is now a New York Times bestseller. Hami has built up Hannah's story by interviewing more than 250 people, firstly getting many rejections over the past three years. We chatted about Hannah Winter, why she's so powerful in fashion, but also why people beyond fashion ask for Hannah's advice and opinion, such as Serena Williams or Bradley Cooper when he had to cast for A Star is Born. We also talked about who could replace her if there is a Vogue without Anna Winter and if the next editor-in-chief would be as influential as Hannah. Of course, I also asked Emmy what it's like to write a book about Hannah Winter when she didn't officially release an interview, but she only recommended a list of people that she could go to and ask for their opinions. How she kept going despite receiving so many no's when she requests for interviews to people and much more. If you're listening to this episode, as usual, take a screenshot and tag me at Glam Observer so I can repost all of your stories. So without further ado, let's get into this new episode. How has your career started in the fashion industry? Can you tell us a, a little bit about your background from what you started to how you ended up then in fashion? I studied journalism at NYU in New York. I moved here from Austin, Texas. When I was 18 to go to school and I fell in love with journalism and media right away. And I really started covering fashion for New York Magazine. I was a freelance party reporter. So I would go out to red carpet events and interview celebrities. I did a lot of fashion events like Fashion Week, um, Project Runway events, which was huge at the time. This was like 2007. And then in 2008, I became a full-time blogger at The Cut, which was a new... um, a new blog for New York Mag, and I was the first full-time writer on it. And I did that for four years. And that was really how I um, specifically ended up writing about fashion. 
You have just released your new book, Another Biography. So my first question is, why Hannah Winter? I am among many people who have long been fascinated by Anna Wintour. And, you know, if you think about uh, the business world broadly, not just fashion, not just media, but business in general, her tenure is unusual. She has been at Vogue since 1988. So that will be 34 years this summer. And If you look at other business leaders like Jeff Bezos, for instance, he left Amazon after 27 years. So it's one thing to get to the top and it's quite another to stay there, particularly for as long as Anna has. And despite having that public position for so, so long, she's someone who has remained an enigma, even to people who know her well. And, you know, a lot of people also know Anna from The Devil Wears Prada, the film, But that is a really one-dimensional view of a woman who many people describe to me as complicated. And I was surprised in doing the reporting to learn so many things about her. I was surprised to hear her described as a matriarch of her family. I was surprised to learn that she wants to be remembered for her philanthropic work and not for her magazine work. And I was surprised to hear her described as a doting grandmother and a dog lover. Yeah, definitely. Because we all, you know, envision Anna Winter with their black glasses and a strong work headache. So yeah, I guess these are the things that you have discovered that you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people do not think about Anna Winter as a human being. They think about her as this character who has been kind of dehumanized uh, through many years of Uh, media reports through that devil wears product caricature of her. And this book, Anna, the biography reveals, uh, I think, a, a different side of her that we really haven't seen before. Yeah, I think this makes it even extra special. But I wanted to ask you, when do you think and how as Hannah became so powerful? Where are the main changes or actions that made there? one of the most or even the most inflation person in the fashion industry? You know, some of that, as I learned through my extensive research, is grandfathered into the role of editor-in-chief of Vogue. The editor-in-chief of Vogue has, from what I could tell, historically really been the leader of the fashion industry. You can look back to Edna Woolman Chase, who started working at Vogue in 1895 and then became editor-in-chief some years after that in the early 1900s. She really kind of served as the leader of the fashion industry, particularly in New York. And that power was really expanded upon over the years. Uh, Deanna Vreeland really occupied that role in the 60s. Grace Mirabella did in the 70s. And, you know, these women were advising fashion houses on which designers to appoint, much in the way that Anna does. Um, But from what I could tell, Anna really expanded the influence of this role. So she is someone who has an extraordinary network of people that she has built up over the course of these 34 years across industries, right? Not just fashion, but politics, entertainment, sports. And I have a number of stories in the book that really showcase her influence. For instance, Serena Williams considers Anna to be a close and a confidant and described calling her when she was struggling with tennis and then going on to win Wimbledon 
uh, based on the advice that Anna gave to her. I have another example in the book of Bradley Cooper sending over his script for A Star is Born yeah. before he had cast Lady Gaga in the role to get Anna's input on it. And these are the kinds of things that are happening behind the scenes all the time that are not really discussed in the media. And I I was very surprised to learn about this because I think a lot of people in the fashion world understand that the editor-in-chief of Vogue and Anna in particular are giving heads of fashion houses advice on designer appointments and things like that. But I was surprised to hear that that influence really extends to so many other industries. Yeah, absolutely. When I read your book and I discovered about Bradley Cooper, I had no idea about that that was very surprising so what do you think she has the power to also influence on other fields and not just fashion you know i think that a lot of people really trust her taste and she is a very savvy businesswoman and i think her strength is really that she's able to uh communicate very effectively with both creatives and with business people and there are a lot of people in fashion who are fantastically creative and brilliant, but they don't also have um, that ability that she has to talk to business people and um, to uh, deliver advice that, that they want to take. So I think that that's really her strength is that she's able to talk to business people and also understand the creative side of the business. And I talk in the book extensively about all those fashion editor jobs that she had right before she got to American Vogue, before she became the Amer- the editor-in-chief of American Vogue, she held so many other positions. She worked in the trenches and she worked her way up. So she understands that, um, you know, how that world works and how that work happens. So she's really able to, um, to handle both sides of the business. And I think that that's really what the role of editor-in-chief of any fashion magazine demands. Yeah, definitely. She goes way beyond the the role of the editor-in-chief and we admire leadership and a strong work ethic. So I guess that maybe now that you have done all of this research, you know more about her work ethic because we all have this idea of Hannah Wintour as a strong and super hard worker but now that you've done your research and since we focus on careers can you tell us more about a work ethic anna winter's work ethic is extraordinary i mean she gets up i think she could be getting up in the four o'clock hour some days um and she sometimes starts emailing her team before 6 a.m So she gets up, she says that she reads the news, she exercises, she gets ready for her day by getting her hair and makeup done professionally at home. She gets driven to the office um, where she typically has her breakfast waiting for her um, and her assistants are there ready to go. And, you know, people told me that she gets more done in a day than like anybody they've ever seen. And, you know, she became artistic director of Condé Nast, meaning she gained oversight of titles beyond Vogue at the company in 2013. And people said they thought that when that happened, that she would be less involved with Vogue. Of course, she retained the title of editor-in-chief of Vogue. However, that didn't happen. 
she just kind of started getting up earlier and finding more hours in her day to get even more work done. So she's incredibly efficient with her time. And, you know, something that a lot of people said is if you get a 15 minute meeting with her, that's considered to be quite long. Mm -hmm. She's not someone who likes to sit in long meetings and kind of waste away as many people in corporate environments do. Um, She wants people to get answers from her quickly. And then she wants to move on to the next thing that she's doing. And she's also someone who this struck me so much about her, but she, uh, you know, if you write her an email, she'll get back to you right away. Um, she doesn't let things linger for a long time, which I think is a habit that a lot of people have these days. You'll write an email and then you won't hear back. You'll have to follow up and follow up. Um, you know, people told me that she will, if you send her an email and you need help or you, you need an answer from her, she'll get back to you right away. And if she doesn't, she will write you to say that she's going to get back to you because she doesn't like to have things just festering and lingering on her plate. She likes to deal with them and then move on. Yeah, she has multiple superpowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also read in your book that, of course, if she were a man, probably she wouldn't have gotten all the attention that she has today also for a strong work ethic. Yeah, some people believe that. And I think the readers are going to have to decide if they agree with that. Um, a number of people said, you know, if she were a male executive, her methods would not come under some of the harsh scrutiny that they have come under. You know, one of the things I describe in the book, for instance, is how she got this reputation, right, for being this icy figure. And she was called uh, over the course of her career, nuclear winter or winter of our discontent. And that really began in the mid 80s when she became the editor in chief of British Vogue in 1986. She went from New York over, and this was her first editor-in-chief job, over to London. She became editor-in-chief of British Vogue. And she probably didn't want to stay in that job for very long because she had a new baby and her husband was in New York. So there were practical concerns for her about getting back to New York. Um, But also she really wanted to edit American Vogue. So she gets this job at British Vogue and she probably felt like, because she wanted to get back to New York, Uh, but also because it's in her nature to do things quickly and efficiently, she had to turn the magazine around fast. And so what did she do? She cleaned out the staff. She got rid of a lot of people and she completely changed the magazine. She changed the look of the fashion. Totally. It before her was kind of this fantastical, um, uh, maybe kind of romantic, like uh, women riding horses or women with like twigs in their hair and forests. And she made it, you know, like women in suits chasing after taxis. So a drastic change to the look of the fashion. Um, And she did other things too. She totally changed the front of the book. She cut columnists. She brought in new people. And she did that all very fast. And that was just really unlike the culture of British magazines at the time. Like editors-in-chief didn't just come in from New York and totally changed the staff and, and everything about a magazine. And she did that. And that really kind of led to her reputation. So would that have been the case if she was a man? You know, it's hard to say because she's not a man. Um, but that is something that people brought up a number of times in, in my interviews. Yeah. Yeah. I guess at, the, at this point that she knows about the book, do you know if she read it or said anything? Well, of course she knows about the book because she helped with the book. Um, 
after I'd been slogging away on it for about a year and a half and, and interviewed more than 100 people, her office found out about it. And the result of our conversation about the book was that they sent over a list of close friends and colleagues for me to interview. And I asked for her to give permission to a number of other people to talk to me. And she did. She did approve every single person I, I asked her to. Um, but you know, I, I don't know if she's read the book, you'd have to ask her and mm -hmm. I don't know what, what she thinks of it. I can only venture to guess. Um, but I'm just as curious as anyone to know what her reaction has been to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, is she approved people? It looks like she also proved that, I mean, she was happy for you to, to write her biography. Have you um, asked there directly to share a story because it's common for, you know, famous people, especially in successful people, even in business in general, to write a biography at some point. So why has she not published one yet? So she, I did attempt to, to interview Anna. I made several formal requests for interviews and she declined them all. And, uh, you know, people say that she doesn't like to talk about herself. <laughs> so that could be why. A number of her close friends said she doesn't like to talk about herself. She doesn't want to sit and reflect on the meaning of Anna Wintour the way that many of the rest of us do. And a number of people said she has no plans to write a memoir. And if you think of the act of writing a memoir, well, what does that require? That requires uh, reflection and um, pulling your memories together and thinking about how to tie them together and what it all means in the culture. And based on all the reporting I did, this extensive reporting and extensive interviewing with people who are very close to her, people who had never talked on the record about her before, uh, that didn't sound to me like the type of thing that she would be likely to do because she's so focused on her job and that's what she loves. And I think that that's what she wants to focus on. And something that really struck me about her is like, you know, a lot of people uh, perhaps particularly in fashion and media, they get to a high, high position and then they become, um, they become fixated on self-promotion. And I think it would be impossible to be in Anna's position and not think about self-promotion to some degree. But the way people talked about her, I never got the impression that that was more important to her than her job itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. You said that you asked her to tell her story directly and she rejected your request. But despite that, you kept going and you asked if you could interview other people. It's admirable the fact that you didn't give up despite that maybe she rejected your request to talk to her directly. So despite that, you didn't give up, but you kept writing right. or doing the, your research. Right. You know, it would have been unusual for her to sit for an interview um, based on all the things I just told you, right? <laughs> like she doesn't want to sit there and talk about herself. She doesn't want to spend a long time in meetings, um, you know, interview for biography. You would want a lot of time for that. So I think a lot of things in her nature go against the idea of sitting and, and doing interviews for biographies such as this one, but by having her close friends and colleagues speak with me, um, you know, I was able to learn more about her, I think, than other journalists who have written about her have. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it was, it really sort of opened the floodgates once, once that happened, because 
people who had earlier in my process hung up the phone on me or said, you know, they couldn't talk to me unless she said it was okay. Then, you know, I was able to get them to speak to me. And the book is written in an objective way. So it's not necessarily about you know, them fawning over her, but just to have people who have had experiences with her that, you know, you kind of want to fill in the holes in your story and certain, certain people are able to do that. Um, maybe where no one else is, it was very helpful to have them, have them talk to me. Yeah. And since you have interviewed all these people and as a journalist, you have to report the fact. So how did you know that all these people were turning the true, that real facts about Hannah or that something was just invented or not true? Uh, so the challenge with biography, and this is something I've, I've been a journalist for more than 15 years, and I have never faced quite this challenge before as with writing biography, but the human memory <laughs> is such a challenge with biography because like, if I asked you to describe something that happened exactly one week ago, like how good would your memory be? you know? Um, or if I asked you to describe something that happened one year ago, how much detail could you give me? So then with biography, you're asking people to describe, Anna is 72 years old. You're asking people to describe things that happened, um, 50, 60 years ago. And it's hard for people to remember. And you want, for a book, you want cinematic detail, you know, you want to know what, what things looked like and sounded like and smelled like. Um, and it's very hard for most people, even people with good memories, <laughs> to give a lot of detail um, about things that happened a long time ago. So that was really the challenge. And where people were unsure, you know, what I had to do was try to corroborate with other sources. Uh, so I spent a lot of time asking people like, You know, when Anna was creative director at American Vogue in uh, 1983, uh, someone remembered her office looking like this. Is that what you remember? And then people would say, um, oh, I remember, I do remember that. Yes, that sounds right. So there was a lot of, a lot of the reporting was kind of like that. Like, do you remember this being the case? Do you remember that being the case? And a lot of people, if they were unsure of their memories, they would say, you know, I think I remember it this way, but you should check that. Mm -hmm. So that was a unique a unique challenge. Um, but if you're asking like, were people outright lying to me? I, I mean, I'd never got that sense that people were outright lying about anything. I, I, I just don't think that's in, um, in the nature of most people. Yeah. And do you think there is someone nowadays that is even close to Because there isn't anyone like Hannah, I believe, but someone close to Hannah's power or influence in fashion? At the moment, no, but that's only because I really think that the editor-in-chief of Vogue occupies that spot. Because, as I said, that's been the case for basically a century, that the editor-in-chief of Vogue has occupied that spot as kind of the leader of the fashion industry in general. And I do believe that when Anna moves on from the job, which she will, she, she has to because she's a human being, that when she moves on from the job, a new person will occupy that spot. I feel like it is like Hannah Winter is going to live forever, but is there Vogue without Hannah then? And I mean, of course, there's going to be Vogue, but can the next one be as powerful as Hannah? 
That's a big question, right? I think that, yes, the next person can be as powerful as Anna, but I don't think it's going to happen overnight in the same way that it didn't really happen for Anna overnight either. Um, You know, as I was describing earlier with all this network of people that she has who reach out to her, who rely on her. And we see them at the Met Gala. We saw this recently, right? They walk up the steps at the Met Gala and they shake her hand and they're there because she has invited them. Um, It takes time to build up that, that network of people. It takes time to build up that influence. I think that it can be done. I think the challenge for the next editor is going to be something that no editor and chief of Vogue has had to deal with after making the transition, which is, you know, we have the internet now and that has completely changed power dynamics and media consumption habits. Um, in fashion, you know, if you want to know what's going on in fashion in 2022, you can look at any number of sources. You can look at TikTok, you can look at Instagram, you can look at Vogue, you can look at any number of other websites, right? Um, when Anna took over in 1988, there was none of that. If you wanted to know what was going on in fashion, you had Vogue, you had Harper's Bazaar, you maybe had a couple other magazines. So that's really going to be the challenge. And that's the X factor with the transition is how is the next editor-in-chief going to leverage Vogue so that it's dominant um, on, on all of these platforms and, and you know, can kind of outshine every other publication? Um, you know, what is the next vision going to be that is going to allow Vogue to stay on the top and allow the next editor-in-chief to stay on the top, given that consumers have so many other options now? Yeah. And since, you know, so far, normally the editor-in-chief is already someone working at the magazine. But since, like you said, nowadays fashion is not just magazines, do you think that, who do you think is going to be the next person that could replace Hannah? Do you think it's going to be someone inside the fashion journalist, a fashion journalist or inside the fashion magazine industry? Or it could be even more destructive, like someone from, I don't know, a social media platform or someone like the creative director of a brand? Yeah, that's the big question, I think. So the way I would answer it is I would look to history. Uh, one of the names that comes up a lot uh, as far as someone who could replace Anna is Edward Enenful, the editor-in-chief of British Vogue. Mm-hmm. People love what he's doing over there. He's created a lot of memorable images. Uh, you know, audiences, uh, his work is really resonating with audiences. And uh, his name has come up in uh, news reports as a possible successor to Anna. What I will say about that is that, you know, Corrine Reutfeld used to come up as a possible successor to Anna and that never happened. Um, So these reports are often wrong. Um, And, In the past with editor-in-chief transitions, the person who has gotten the job has always worked at Vogue um, in a a lesser role before. So Anna Wintour was creative director of American Vogue in the early to mid-80s, and she worked other editor-in-chief jobs at Condé Nast. She went to British Vogue, as I mentioned, and then she went to House and Garden, and then she became editor-in-chief of American Vogue. So she had had... um, how long has she been at Vogue? She had had like five years of experience working at Condé Nast and a few years working at Vogue already by the time she became editor-in-chief. Uh, 
for her predecessor, Grace Mirabella, had worked at Vogue for a very long time before becoming editor-in-chief. Deanna Vreeland was, I believe her title was associate editor of American Vogue before she became editor-in-chief. So this was the case with all the, all the editor-in-chief transitions in Vogue's history. So I would be surprised if they picked someone completely out of left field who had no history working at Conde Nast and specifically working at, at American Vogue. Mm-hmm. What have you enjoyed the most about writing this book? I, I, th- I think it, it, it has taken you years to put together all the information and doing the interviews. How many years? Yeah, so I started this book in 2018, late 2018, and it's 2022. <laughs> so it's been about three and a half years, I guess. Um, And I, I would say it was really a three-year process um, of, you know, intense, intense research and writing. Um, And I, I enjoyed so much of it. It was, it was really challenging. Um, It's, it's hard to write about people in positions of power. It's really hard. Um, But Anna is someone who I've, long been fascinated by. So, you know, I, I loved doing the interviews and hearing stories about her that, you know, probably no one has heard before. And, um, putting it together was also really hard because I had, I don't even probably thousands of pages of transcripts. And then you have to distill that into a narrative, a digestible narrative for the reader. So that was a, that was a huge challenge. Um, just doing that. I mean, once you get people on the phone, I, I felt like it, it was sort of um, fun at that point to just talk to people and hear their stories. That's the fun, almost easy. I don't want to say easy because for every one of those conversations, you have to research and prepare a lot uh, and write really thoughtful questions. Because as I said, like when you're up against the human memory, you have to have really specific things to jog people's memories. Um, like you have to have specific stories to ask them about. If you just called, I made this mistake early in the process, but if you just call someone and you're like, so what was she like? What do you remember about her? You get almost no information. <laughs> um, so that part was really fun. I mean, I, I don't know like what, what I would say was like the most fun part because writing it can also be fun too. I can tell you one of the one of the tedious parts was definitely putting together the source citations at the end. There's extensive source citations at the end, um, so many which times. tell people, yeah, where everything came from. But I also felt like that was really important to do because Anna Wintour is someone who has been the subject of so much gossip and speculation. And I wanted people to know, you know, like all of this is coming from somewhere. It's not just, um, it's not just made up gossip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many people said yes and how many people said no to your interview request uh well I interviewed more than 250 people for the book and I stopped counting after 250 so it was somewhere between 250 and 300 and I I can't remember how many people I approached yeah wow I I stopped counting that as well (laughs) that's a lot really yeah I was asking the question because for example when in, in our case here at Globe Server that we suggest to, you know, reach out to fashion professionals and they say, but they don't respond to me. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I, I guess also you got rejections from people who didn't want to do the interview. 
So yeah, that's why I was just asking to know the side. I mean, how many no's you have kept going and reaching out to other people? Oh, I went, yeah, I went weeks, especially in the beginning. I went weeks where it would be just no's and that was demoralizing. I'm not going to lie. That was hard, but you have to keep trying. (laughs) Um, And so after I got a lot of no's in the beginning, I thought, okay, how can I start getting some yeses? And this, as I said, my first biography. So I, I, I was really figuring this out as I went along and I thought, you know, maybe if I go back to the beginning of her life and I find people from her early life, they will have more distance from her and be more open to speaking with me. And that proved to be a good assumption. So I did, I started my reporting I've kind of started over and said, okay, I'm going to start in the beginning and then reach out to these people and work my way forward in time. And that was a successful strategy. And that enabled me to get those hundred and or however many people um, that I got before her office found out about the book. And I had that conversation with her representative about it. Yeah. How did you find the first people? I mean, I guess that once you find the first people, then you can ask who else you can reach out for information, but in the beginning for the first people, especially when it comes to our personal life, like family and friends, how have you started your research there? So one of the things that uh, you can do is search newspaper archives, right? Uh, For articles about people. And she's a prominent person. So a number of profiles have been written about her over the years, right? Mm -hmm. So you can look at those for details, like where did she go to school? And then you, you look up the school and see what information can you find about the school. So she went to a school in London called North London Collegiate School, and they have some archives available online to researchers. So I was able to access those. And one of the things that they have online is uh, their student magazine from the time that she was there. This is in the 60s, early to mid 60s. And that has information in it like, um, you know, the names of people she played, um, what is it called? Netball, actually, <laughs> at North London Collegiate School. Uh, and um, there was a list of who was on the netball team. So then you can look there and see, you know, who did she go to school with? Um, so these are the kinds of the research that you have to do. And then when you get people on the phone, you know, something that you always have to ask is who else should I talk to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you do all the interviews via phone or emails or also you like went to London or traveled and meet, met people in person? So most of them were done over the phone because a lot of the research was conducted during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it was done in person. Some of it was done in person. Some of it was done on Zoom calls. But because of the pandemic, a lot of it was done over the phone. And I was also pregnant Um So I was pregnant. I had two babies over the course of working on this book. So my ability to travel was really limited because when you have a newborn, it's very hard to travel. Uh, And um, pregnant during the pandemic, I wasn't going to be traveling. So yeah, you were, you were busy during the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much. And also congratulations because the book is now a New York Times bestseller. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for, yeah, for this very nice and interesting conversation. 
Thank you so much, Hemi, for joining me for the Glimpse of Our Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you so much, and bye for now.